This is Digital Pathology Today. Now, here's your host, Dr. Joseph Anderson. They're coming. Artificial intelligence and machine learning algorithms in digital pathology. How do we go about assessing the robustness and suitability of these new tools for use in actual clinical practice? Welcome to Digital Pathology Today. I'm Joe Anderson. Our guests are Dr. Angelique Levi, Associate Professor of Pathology and Vice Chair and Director of Pathology Outreach Services, and Dr. Sudhir Paranchiri, Assistant Professor of Pathology and Director of Digital Pathology, both from the Yale School of Medicine. We're talking about how new tools are going to be incorporated into clinical practice and the impact of these new tools in various practice settings, such as academic medical centers, community outreach programs, and private practice. What does this mean for the training of the next generation of pathologists? We're only human after all, but what about machine algorithms? What level of mistakes or misses is acceptable? And what if these new tools are too sensitive? Could they actually slow us down and make life more complicated for us? Digital pathology is changing the practice of medicine. So come and experience an exclusive conference focused on practicing digitally. The Digital Diagnostics Summit will be held September 21st through 23rd at the Elite St. Regis Resort in the heart of Park City's Wasatch Mountains. This intimate summit will showcase the latest and greatest developments with the FDA, genetic testing, AI, and will unveil groundbreaking new tech. In addition, registration includes premier excursions like guided fly fishing, mountain biking, or a High West saloon tour complete with whiskey tasting. Our very own Dr. Joe Anderson will be moderating a panel of world-renowned pathologists discussing the puts and takes of going digital. These two days will change the way you look at the digital pathology landscape forever. So join us September 21st through 23rd. Register online at digitaldiagnosticsummit.com. That's digitaldiagnosticsummit.com. Angelique Levi and Sudhir Piranchari, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. One thing that's emerging in digital pathology is AI-based tools or algorithms, which can help us diagnose cases or at the very least provide us a second review or quality check to what the pathologist is doing on a daily basis. There's commercially available algorithms now coming out uh, from various companies and actually being deployed in the real world. What are the considerations in developing these tools? Before we can even begin to deploy one of these tools. Uh, it has to be developed carefully. And in pathology and laboratory medicine, we know all about uh, assay development and validation. And I think it's very interesting to apply these concepts to digital pathology. So first of all, what, what are we looking for in terms of assessing the technology? How do we know we have a robust platform that we can build on? As with any piece of software or any algorithm, it really depends on how well it is written. The old philosophy of garbage in, garbage out. Any robust AI algorithm has to be developed on a pretty extensive data set, pretty robustly validated within its data set before it is transported on to application in other settings. What I mean by that is, the limitation or some of the challenges in developing these AI algorithms has been the size of material because uh, the more number of cases that are used to train the algorithm, uh, the better the accuracy tends to be. Therefore, if you look at the algorithms that have sort of been most in the news, they have usually come out of really big centers, trained on pretty extensive number of cases. And typically how they do it is they use a subset of cases to train the algorithm, and then 
they apply it blindly to the rest of the data set to see how good the AUC or the area under the curve is. So I think for the get-go, the most important thing is how extensive is the data set, how good is it, and how comprehensively has it been annotated to train the AI algorithm. The time-worn principles of validation and statistical analysis are not going away. So certainly we need large data sets. We want to develop these tests on one group of patients and validate on another, apply some kind of robust statistical analysis. There's many, many stakeholders, and it is a multifaceted problem. So in an application that may appear as narrow as prostate cancer, I think there's many levels to it. First and foremost, can we make an accurate diagnosis? But then beyond that, what about prediction and prognosis? You know, I think the holy grail is how can we identify how best this patient should be treated? So, And then we can talk about this in a bit, but I think prostate cancer is, on the one hand, we've done exceptionally well. Outcomes, as Sudhir was saying, for prostate cancer are generally quite good, or at least in low-risk prostate cancer, 3 plus 3 and 3 plus 4, limited disease outcomes are very good, which is good news. But the downside is we don't necessarily know how best to treat patients. Should a patient go on watchful waiting? Should they go for definitive prostatectomy? I think there's, there is room to add value and add diagnostic information. But first, how will these tools be incorporated in everyday practice? We had Dr. Michael Feldman from University of Pennsylvania, and he envisioned what he called a digital fellow. This digital fellow is going to come in and preview all of the cases, much like a human fellow, uh, before the attending even sees them. How do you two see this unfolding in the next couple of years? I think if you ask around, there seems to be no general consensus on how this is going to evolve. And part of it is because we are real-time seeing it in uh, being deployed. And so everyone is doing a little bit of prediction of the future as best as they can. I think at the very least, it will be deployed as a diagnostic assist tool. And anecdotally, what I've heard is some of these companies that are developing these algorithms from with a commercial application and sort of commercial bent of mind, which is quite a few of them, if you look at it, many of them actually targeting community pathologists. And what I mean by that is, so in our academic setting, and as we showed in our paper, for example, we are in a setup where each case is first reviewed by either by a resident or a fellow who are usually um, pretty well trained. Then it it's gets, uh, again, all the courts are again reviewed by an attending. And oftentimes there are borderline cases that we take to consensus conference. There's, so there's almost like three layers of screening that goes into it. In a setting such as this, uh, if you look at a paper, even though the algorithm did fantastically well, uh, you could argue that it didn't add much value to our workflow. On the other hand, this has been published in papers. If you move it away from an academic setting where there are a number of people looking at the same individual case to more of a community setup, or a private practice setup where perhaps not the same number of eyes are going through a case, then the utility of these algorithms shoots up. And in fact, there are papers now published that show that the detection of cancer um, in various diseases actually, not just prostate, goes up when these tools are applied as diagnostic as these tools. And I do think Dr. Feldman is right. Like it's probably going to be deployed as either a screening tool where you know I have like 20 prostate cases and the algorithm goes through and flags it and says, hey, take a look at these. Or the alternative also, I think, the, a second use case I could see is, I think as most pathologists, the thing that we worry about most is whether we've missed something. And so I could envisage a scenario where, you know, 
every negative case that I sign out, like, you know, any case that I sign out and I say, there's no cancer here, I could put it through the algorithm and say, just as a sort of a second test to make sure that I have not made an error. I see that also as a potential use of these algorithms. I agree. The community setting, I think, has many applications in that improving workflow in a situation where prostate biopsies, they're increasing right now with the advent of multiparametric MRI. It's not just the systematic biopsy that we receive in pathology. Now we have targeted biopsy as well. The hope is that we eventually will only need the targeted biopsies, but in the meantime, in our practice here at Yale, and I'm sure now that MRI is more of a standard practice in terms of imaging in these cases, it's generating more slides, more biopsies, more work volume in an already heavy portion of community practice. And so considerations of turnaround time and community practice is very relevant. Um, as Sudhir mentioned, the QC component, you know, hospitals really use pathology and pathologists to guide patient safety and safety data. And so that component is very useful in that setting. And improving workflow at the end of the day in a, in a very busy practice can also hopefully assist in preventing burnout and really improve overall well-being. So, you know, those are some features that I feel in community practice, these AI tools or a digital fellow would be very useful because uh, they don't have access the way academic practice does. Those workflow considerations, I think, are extremely important, or maybe the benefits aren't necessarily what people think. Because, I mean, I think people outside of the field of pathology, you know, they have certain ideas about how this new technology is going to come in and save us. You know, but I think, as Sudhir said, you know, it doesn't necessarily increase the accuracy because people hopefully are not surprised to know pathologists do an extremely good job finding cancer, and it's very often the needle in the haystack situation. So we're very good at that, but it, we could get efficiencies, we could do it faster. I mean, maybe if the AI algorithm told us which areas to focus on, maybe with a heat map or like Dr. Pierancheri said, it's those negative cases, right? The cases where you don't see anything, you know, could you be missing something help us breathe a sigh of relief and allow us to, to put that energy to use elsewhere. So what benefits do you two think we can see from this type of technology? Is it going to be a savings in time? Is it going to be a savings in cost? Is there room for higher accuracy or is it just going to decrease anxiety among pathologists and patients? Oh, I think it's going to lead to an all-run improvement. I do think it's going to improve accuracy. I do think the quantitative measures that form part of our reports are going to be much more accurate. I mean, we'll be moving from manual measurements to automated measurements on a digital image, which are going to be by far and away, in my opinion, more accurate. I think it is going to lead to savings in time, most definitely. Um, like you said, there are, there's the QA aspects of it. I just see it as a really enhancing multiple aspects of our workflow, including accuracy, time savings, QC, and so on. There is, of course, the flip side of it, which is how sensitive is the algorithm? Could you argue that, a, for example, in the context of prostate cancer, that if you had a highly, a very sensitive AI, say, will it flag a lot of cases that maybe don't need to be looked at so carefully. What I'm saying is, you know, those cores that we sign out as atypical small SNR proliferations, which could be very small foci of three plus three, but it could be argued that if you miss them, it's not a big deal. 
is there going to be that aspect of it where it's sort of instead of decreasing our work, uh, workload actually increases it, meaning that in our workflow, we catch all the cancers and then it makes us look at a lot of negative cores just because it's very sensitive. And then I think there are the other these other issues that we need to work out. Is an AI allowed diagnostic misses? So even within our data set, we had a few misses in see a specific pattern, but uh, is an AI allowed to miss those? And so if they are allowed to, how much is okay? And so on, you know, I just don't know how those aspects of the of these things are going to get worked out. If we miss one case of a, out of 100, is it okay? And who decides that? Um, those sort of things, I think, have to play out a little bit. How the tools are used and in what setting is really important. So if in a practice where prostate cancer isn't as common as in an academic tertiary center, do you need a very sensitive AI algorithm that's going to pick up all of the atypical small acinar proliferations? Are we going to spend more time reviewing those at consensus or working them up with immunohistochemical stains? So it, it really is a tool that we have to carefully apply and use so that in each setting, it doesn't do the opposite or what we didn't intend for it to do. The algorithm, algorithm will be set up for um, whether it's better at grading or better at detecting a miss in a low cancer rate population, for example. Yeah, it does bring up uh, a lot of ethical considerations, you know, not the least of which is the practical considerations about, you know, what happens if you miss a small focus or an ASAP area. I'm not sure if there is a right answer. I mean, obviously, we don't want to miss anything, and you know, that's unacceptable. But in terms of what is the significance, we don't really know. Every case is different. Depending on the practice setting, there's a good chance this patient would be rebiopsied in six months with the persistent elevated PSA or whatever reason brought them into biopsy in the first place. You know, so there's a lot of unknowns. And then in terms of what is acceptable for a miss, there seems to be a higher level of scrutiny, or at least in the early days of AI and what, what's acceptable, you know, maybe make the analogy to self-driving cars, rightly or wrongly. Humans are terrible drivers. They get in accidents all the time, often serious. What about in the era of self-driving cars? Is it going to be acceptable to have a car accident? The AI is probably a much better driver than the person, but yet at some level, it seems like that would be unacceptable. Like it seems like the human being is abdicating their responsibility to drive the car, right? Oh, you just went to sleep, let your self-driving car get in an accident and horrible things happen. So similarly in pathology, it seems like it would be completely unacceptable for that to happen. Like it somehow would be the human being pathologist abdicating their responsibility to do the right thing and be responsible for the case. The question for clinically significant differences or changes that change clinical management. I mean, when we talk about an error rate missing a focus that's atypical, as Sudhir mentioned, really depends on the, the context of that specimen. Were there other cores that were with cancer? Is the acceptance of a missed atypical focus okay, as it wouldn't change clinical management in this particular patient? And it extends to detection of atypical foci, and as he said, some of the metrics that we have to document uh, that would be so nice for AI to help automate with percent involvement, uh, extent in linear measurements uh, across cores and multiple specimens, um, extent of Gleason grade four. So some really more specific um, 
data points that could be pulled out. But really, it's in the context of how are these areas that you will or won't accept a miss impacting the overall clinical management? Is this person going to be screened more if the ASAP was caught and there's no other cancer? Or is this person already diagnosed with 3 plus 4 and, and there's no need for an additional focus of atypical glands to be worked up further. So it's really the context of how these detections are going to change clinical management. Exactly. The context of how these features are going to change management, which brings up an interesting point. Gleason grading or Gleason scoring is kind of the main way we classify prostate cancer. And it's relatively simplistic. So maybe for people outside of pathology, we're talking about the pattern of the glands in the in the prostate cancer. It's based largely or it's based solely on the proportion of the cancer that's making glands. Is there other areas? I'm sure there's got to be because we know from other tumor types, we're looking at nuclear features, nuclear morphology, and other histologic features. Is there going to be an opportunity to add additional diagnostic information, you know, mining features from h and I mean, what strikes me as being noticeably absent from our classification of prostate cancer is some kind of nuclear score. What about other features such as the, the stroma or the inflammatory response, you know, where we have all these tools available to us with digital pathology and AI. So we're going to be able to mine other histologic features. So the prediction for that, I think, is going to be a definite yes. If there's one thing the studies have shown so far is that these algorithms are able to mine features that the human eye simply does not see. But to do that, as I said before, is it is incredibly important to have a data set where you know outcomes. It really all ultimately boils down to the robustness of the data spanning many number of years so that you can actually tie features at diagnosis to outcome, long-term outcomes. And whoever has access to or who is able to build that sort of a data set Uh, is going to be ahead of everybody else and coming out with an algorithm that does it uh, with a high degree of accuracy, in my opinion. And I I definitely like the idea also of the additional features that the, the human eye cannot even appreciate. So while we talk about nuclear features that haven't been established, the features, as you said, in the stroma, things that we can't appreciate, vascularity or edema, Radiology has some experience in some of those um, features, and are those features available in an H&E that we just can't appreciate with our eye, that with additional tool, we can add a separate layer to help with prediction? There are many levels to it. Now, Drs. Paranchiri and Levi, you're in academics at Yale. So what does this mean for the future of pathology education, the training of residents? What's the world going to look like when these tools become more available and trainees are interacting with these tools on a regular basis? How is training going to change? And what is this going to mean for the diagnostic acumen of our young trainees? Are they going to become better? Are they going to become worse? They're depending on artificial intelligence to do the work for them. What is it? What's the future going to look like? So I think we should not make the mistake of assuming that the sign, the field is going to stay static. We have a digital revolution taking place and the pace of innovation is far exceeds anything that we have seen in the past. Uh, and it's only going to get faster. Right? It will become necessary for our training programs to become a bit more nimble. All of us, I think, who hope to uh, survive and thrive in this environment will have to become more adaptable 
to experiment, uh, adopt uh, these technologies. And that's true of our, of our trainees too. It's a very exciting time ahead. It's also a very disruptive time ahead. We need to make sure that our training programs emphasize the ability to sort of interact or interface rather with technology. We need to bring a mindset into our training programs where residents are encouraged to sort of innovate because I think there's going to be an opportunity here to innovate at a rapid pace and at a grand scale. It is going to be disruptive, but it's also going to be an exciting time. And those who are ready to sort of step in, prepare to swim in these waters will thrive. And so as an academic program, I think it's incumbent upon us to sort of uh, put that mindset in our trainees, give them the exposure to these technologies and to emphasize some of these technologies in their training so that as they join in, um, they can sort of take this field into the future because if we don't do it, the data scientists will. And so if you want to take the ownership of this digital revolution, it's incumbent on us to make sure that our trainees are comfortable with these aspects of pathology. I think it's going to be a very different science uh, 10 years down the road. We will always need, however, to learn the fundamentals of histopathology and morphology. It will remain a gold standard of sorts that we need to classify diseases consistently grade them into meaningful reproducible categories that have relationship to outcome. And that's that gold standard or ground truth is kind of the, the piece that will always have to continue as a fundamental that will, will always be there in pathology education. But the new pieces, absolutely, um, as Sudhir said, are the ability to expose, to give these uh, residents the opportunity to innovate. And that requires logistics that are kind of already handled, whether it's investing in these systems, um, you know, whether it's storage, equipment, and having fruitful kind of ability to invest time and resources in these innovations. And mentors are absolutely key uh, in this. And so the more informatics-driven um, pathology folks that can kind of help drive this, I think the better. And mentorship and the exposure to this during the educational process is really the investment in creating pathologists who are going to be driven to lead in this field. Giving people the, the space to innovate and lead. Oh, thank you so much for being with us. Before we wrap up, let me ask each of you you know, what excites you? Where do you see the field headed in the next 10 years or so, Sudhir? It's going to be digital, digital, digital. And I don't mean just the morphology aspect of it. There are, for example, innovations that allow three-dimensional imaging of tissue without sectioning. Those are sort of going to, some of, actually some of those are already in clinical use in some centers for tissue adequacy and so forth. There is this whole uh, idea of tumor microenvironment that is measured using multiplex immunohistochemistry, immunofluorescence. Uh, those are sort of going to come into the pipeline in our evaluation. I think what we need to do is get out of our silos as people just confined to morphology or just confined to molecular testing, but sort of uh, start really emphasizing the integrative aspect of diagnostic medicine where we, morphology obviously is one aspect of it, 
but we use these tools, all these innovations that are happening to sort of give a better integrated diagno diagnosis. And this could use three-dimensional imaging of tissue. This could use multiplex immunofluorescence to look at the tumor microenvironment. This could use next-gen sequencing data and RNA-seq data with the mutations and so forth. Uh, and just to have a mindset where we do not get confined to silos, but we start looking at the integrative aspects of diagnostic medicine and I think if we do that, uh, we'll continue to be a vital cog in the healthcare space and we'll add value to the healthcare space. And that's the way to sort of keep us and our science relevant in medicine. Well said. I, you know, improving clinical care and how we practice, changing how we practice so that the standard of care is higher, better detection, better prognostication, using these tools in all of those ways and doing it with less tissue, less morbidity, you know, decreasing healthcare costs and targeting therapy for a more personalized approach. But with my outreach hat on, I have to do, say part of what excites me about this field is not just improving the standard of care here at Yale, but having that extend into communities beyond academic institutions to really increase the access to this technology in a way that can have the greatest impact and extend this care perhaps in other countries where there isn't subspecialty expertise and training or even a pathologist, but somehow we're able to extend our improved clinical care and access to improve that impact in a, in a profound way. Democratizing access to care, I think, is a huge theme with digital pathology. So expanding the access to care and elevating the level of care for patients across the world. Well, our guests have been uh, Drs. Sudhir Piranchiri and Angelique Levi we'll see, from Yale. We'll see you next time on Digital Pathology Today. <music> This has been Digital Pathology Today. Please be sure to subscribe. Thanks for listening.